welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. And welcome back to episode 125 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to talk quick about the iHunter app. If uh, if you guys don't have the iHunter app, you are missing out on one of the most utilized tools in our arsenal here at Panoramic Outdoors. Um, it's a digital mapping app that goes right on your phone, replaces your GPS essentially, and you have all kinds of map layers that you can add to that. It has a satellite, high-definition satellite imagery and uh, all the features of a GPS. Plus, you can add landowner maps, public land maps, and uh, all sorts of different apps. If you're interested in checking it out and you're interested in getting a discount on your public land maps, head over to the website web.ihunterapp.com, type in the promo code PANORAMIC30 to get you 30% off the public land map subscription check them out now i hunter welcome back everyone welcome back thank you for joining us myself chase here looking at the screen got tristan on the other end coming from his basement in lockport tristan how's it going man great man great uh the weather has finally turned here a little although in, in manitoba it seemed like we almost skipped the season or skipped something within the, the seasons here we came off a hard winter into really wet long dreary spring and now we are our full force summer i feel like at this point in time with like plus 35 celsius days and that's just uh yeah it's, it, it feels like there hasn't been any of those nice 22 degree celsius kind of like calm days you know what i'm saying yeah kind of came in like a wrecking ball but um this weekend i'm actually kind of looking forward to a a cooler weekend with the boys uh we're heading up to heckler this weekend and the temps are supposed to be around that 20 degree mark and i'm hoping that's going to be not like a cold 20 but like a decently warm spend a few hours on the boat spend some time on the beach and not crazy windy kind of thing you know so hopefully we can really maximize on the weekend and and not get worn out by the the sun obviously but also hopefully not get worn out by the wind and the, the cold, if that's the case. You know what I mean? We rented a rented a cabin up at Hecla for the weekend. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to it, man. Looking forward to getting out on the water and uh, finding a few fish and, and uh, yeah, just enjoying the time out there. Yeah. For those that don't recall, Hecla is where we have our seasonal lot. It's a provincial park in, like, kind of, like, central, south-central Manitoba there. And, uh kind of on the south side of or i guess it would be the the north side of the south basin of lake winnipeg yeah so that... right, right the narrows in lake winnipeg pretty much yeah usually some pretty great fishing this time of year but i haven't connected personally so hopefully you get on them there chase yeah yeah the the facebook feeds are, are filling up with with people that are having some some pretty good luck up there but uh we'll see what happens we'll see what happens we're not uh, i mean no high hopes with the kids going up there but it would be nice to definitely land a few fish with the boys in the boat they always get pumped up about it and every time we pull a pack of fish out of the freezer they're always asking 
Is this the fish I caught? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the one <laughs> you caught. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. So that's old Billy there. Yeah, adds adds to the excitement of the meal a little bit here. So it's always good. And uh, Sheldon, if you well, if you haven't noticed, Sheldon Sheldon's not joining us tonight. He's up in Thompson. He's working right now. But uh, sounds like he's had a couple of good days out on Paint Lake that he was able to sneak away and get some fishing in. So it's good to hear that. Um, I'm sure he was looking forward to to getting out there and, and, and getting in some fishing and he's working on a pretty extensive project up there all summer. So um glad he's able to sneak away and enjoy a little bit of, of the north there at least. But in other big yeah. news, I drew for elk. I saw that. That's exciting. Going elk hunting, archery elk hunting again, back <laughs> out to uh the interlake country. So back out to that that country that we've hunted for the past what four years and have been unsuccessful yep got a bone to pick out there (laughs) this is this is the year this is the year man this is the year i got it all mapped out now i feel like we we've gotten into every place that we need to get into and uh yeah yeah well i'll I'll tell you what i got at least two bottles of wine under my counter right now that are earmarked for a successful elk camp i got i got one really dusty one sitting up in the cupboard as well a bottle of faux and uh it's so old i'm almost thinking that i i'm scared i might forget about it if i do harvest an elk i have a reminder set on my phone for september 1st nice don't forget about the wine (laughs) (laughs) oh man i love it i love it um i don't think i don't think i'm gonna have too uh extravagant of an elk camp this year though i think it's gonna be mainly a weekend endeavor and maybe i like to get out Maybe I might take a couple of days during the week just to, you know, get away from any crowds if there are people, the weekend warriors out there that I might be joining for most of the season. But uh, I think that's going to be a plan for archery elk hunting. I'm going to have to set up the target in the basement here and start flinging some arrows because I haven't done that for a while. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you what your what your plan kind of looks like here because I, I, I feel like I'm going to be kind of on the same schedule here leading into fall i'm not gonna have a lot of time to dedicate to uh, a week-long camp or anything like that but would like to get out to a few days but i i'm excited to get back into the rhythm of shooting shooting some bow a little bit more consistently even just uh getting out on a few weekend things so it's good to hear that that's that's on your radar too Mm -hmm. and uh i i did not draw for elk this year but i i might be heading out there with a camera or whatever and a bugle tube just to you know they they might respond to my my bugle a little more one day than yours for whatever reason so it it might pay to have me out there is all i'm saying (laughs) oh man you don't have to laugh you don't have to laugh so hard at that one (laughs) oh yeah anyways um another thing that uh i got up to i finally got the uh the new 10 weight out to, uh, to wet the line on that sucker. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Speaking of laughing. Yeah. So I had an unsuccessful adventure a few weeks ago with our buddy Dylan there in the swellfish, but uh, got got out uh, last weekend um, on the on the red there, and I was fishing the, the floodway, uh, the mouth of the floodway there, and uh, was expecting you, some what, bigger game. Yeah, what were you targeting <laughs> on the – the 10 weight there was going for cats and carp but uh just ended up hammering the gold eye <laughs> yeah well, what did you catch on the 10 weight yeah gold eye but let me tell you when those things hit they hit they yeah. were uh you know 
I just they, had them figured out perfect. The gold eye bite was on. Yeah. Then I have to feed. worry about snapping the rod, bringing them suckers in. That's for sure. No. <laughs> <laughs> It was Probably. fun though, man. It was fun. I, I'm glad. I was happy just to catch something. It was a super windy day out there, um, and the the setup. So I I used my buddy Dylan there as a as a sounding board or as a as a my mentor on what to purchase for my rod. And uh, my my intention was to go do some pike fishing with it too, but also uses a cat setup. And I kind of got it figured out now. I got it all put together. I got the floating line on there, but I also have a, a sink tip leader that I attached. That was what I had at the floodway. And um, the the line that's on there is awesome for casting to win because it's really weight forward. It's uh, the real short, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just like throwing a hammer out there pretty much on the end of your line. <laughs> so it's it's uh, easy to cast. You still like cast like 30 feet. In a, in a pretty breezy day so lucky the yeah. wind the wind was going the right way for me and it was, i was still able to toss a fly out there and with that big 10 weight man it's handles it really well and you're able to toss that that line out pretty good so excited about that what i want to do though is uh launch that swell fish down there and get up close to the locks and and do some fly fishing out of that baby or even just some conventional angling with our conventional gear because that that swell fish has like all the the scotty's rod holders and all kinds of stuff to to hold the conventional gear so i think that'd be pretty awesome i i was thinking about some real benefits that could come from fishing of that swell fish not only like does it have the weight capacity that probably isn't going to be an issue but if you're moose hunting could be but uh, on the river there you have a, a flatter bottom boat, so you can nose into some of those those areas. Because I was surprised at how shallow the locks actually are mm-hmm. with, the, with the water rushing through there. And it, it's probably a little easier to nose onto shore on some ways, too, as opposed to just, like, driving your your, your V-Haul boat into a, a shoreline. Do you know what I mean? With Especially with the river moving, you could actually drag this thing up the shore a fair ways right mm-hmm. and, and get it out of the get it out of the water a little bit so i i could see it being like a bit more maneuverable and a, like kind of like an easier to to kind of move around and 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 beach if you needed to yeah and, and being a smaller boat too i i definitely normally have a concern about the like stability of like angling a cat out of a 14 foot boat but these things are just like rock solid on the water man it's, it's so cool to to have that stability there and like we'll put it to the test here pretty soon but i think i think things are going to be pretty sweet to to be angling those cats coming out of there yeah and i guess short of putting a knife through the side of it you can't really sink it either right yeah exactly right i guess those so. big big flotations on the side so if anyone's interested in uh checking out what we're talking about you can head over to swellfish.co they're uh inflatable style boats and uh the what the the developer the owner told us is they took everything that uh they wanted to improve on on the zodiac and they made it into a a swell fish so get uh your the best version of your inflatable boat they come with all kinds of options they got the transducer mount they got the electronics mount they got the scotty's rod holders they got beamy tops for these boats now so you can oh, man. travel in the shade. We got the 20-horse Tahatsu on the back of that sucker. 
That thing yep. started first pull, man. Nice. Put it in the water, primed it. Vroom, away she went. We haven't even broke that thing in yet. No, no, I ha- it hasn't seen above idle. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to put some hours on it here um, and really take that thing for a spin. Might have to do a day in the creek with it. Oh, yeah. To break put 20, yeah, a few hours on it there. Yeah, but such a cool unit, man. Two guys can, can hold that thing around wherever they want. And uh, yeah, way you go, way you go adventuring. So, uh, kind of ties into the episode too that we that we have coming up here with Paul Shipman talking about uh, backcountry adventuring and his endeavor into the uh, Feast on Adventure cookbook here, dehydrated and uh, freeze dried meals. But uh, yeah, if that's it, let's roll the episode. Okay, on today's episode, we have uh, an interesting fellow kind of from our home province here in Manitoba joining us, Paul Shipman. Did I, did I pronounce that yeah, correctly, Paul? That's correct, yes. Right on, and looks like you are coming from uh, either a studio, judging by all the music equipment, oh. <laughs> or your uh, basement. Just Where, my home office, actually. Nice, nice. Yeah. And uh, so on top of uh, the title of being an author, you look like you're quite the musician there as well, judging by all the guitars you got in the back. A little bit of a musician, sure. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> nice. That's amazing. Um, before we get rolling, we're going to light her up with five burning questions here to get to know you a little bit. And uh, I'm excited about the first question we have here, and it's a, a pretty um, common question on the five burners. But uh, if you had one last meal... What would that meal be, and what would you wash it down with? Oh, goodness. That is a good question. I feel like I should, you know, have an answer already, like, queued up <laughs> for this. Um, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I kind of expected to have this this kind of issue, though, because, <laughs> like, when I was uh, reading some of the stuff that you've you've uh, wrote, you know, it's, it's it's pretty clear that you're you're passionate about lots of foods. You know, and you have a wide, yeah. wide variety of foods that you enjoy. Yeah, uh, it, I don't know. It's really hard to choose just one. Um, I guess if I was just to go traditional from my family, what was always like the big go-to special meal would probably be like pierogies and kubasa. Nice. I don't think we've had that one yet on the podcast, so that's a that's a solid. That's definitely a solid Manitoba option. Very right Manitoba there. for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got that in my fridge right now too. So. <laughs> That's tomorrow's dinner. So nice. Yeah, that was a staple at our house growing up for sure. Um, do, you, do you throw any sauerkraut in there, Paul? I do. The rest of my family does not, but yeah, I, I like a good sauerkraut pierogi for sure. Nice. Thank goodness. Do you make your own pierogies or do you? Uh, do you I buy do. Them? Yeah. Yep. Nope. Hundred percent. Make my own. Just did. I don't know. Twelve dozen three or four weeks ago. Nice. Yeah. Right on. That's ferment, awesome. Ferment my sauerkraut if I'm doing sauerkraut hey, pierogies, you know. Now we're talking, man. I got uh, I got one jar of sauerkraut in the fridge that's half eaten, and I got another one that's going on probably, oh, man, probably week eight of fermentation. We're going to see what happens with that baby. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I also toss a little jalapeno in, the, in my sauerkraut. livens it up pretty good. I like it. Really enjoy that. Nice. I think my first batch of sauerkraut I ever did, I used... Uh, juniper berries that we picked out Ooh. in opaming nice that that would yeah. probably have uh a lot of good yeast on them too right yes to, to really uh kick up the fermentation process yeah cool like that 
All right, and uh, question number two going on here. Um, you're obviously a fellow that spends quite a bit of time in uh, in the wilderness, but do you have a bucket list backcountry trip that you'd like to go on that you haven't been on yet? My wife and I haven't done very many river trips. Mm. We haven't done Manigatagan, surprisingly. Um, we have to do work on our moving water skills before we do something like that, so that's definitely up there. Mm -hmm. There's... Um, a trip I also have on my sort of trip bucket list I have on here somewhere because I always forget where it is. Give me a second here. Yeah, no worries. It's a Utah trip. It's uh, I'm not sure of the pronunciation. It's uh, Winota Gorge or maybe Oneota Gorge. Uh, and it's a pretty interesting hike where you hike through like a rock face while in the water. Oh, to get to like a, a waterfall at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've always liked the idea of that trip. Nice. I've gone. Uh, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole last week of uh, like backcountry um, water travel trips, and there are some pretty cool places around the world to go check stuff out, and some like very unique places, like uh, some like canyons that you can go down that just has like crystal clear water and, and all kinds of stuff. So. Absolutely. Pretty interesting to have that door open. Um, favorite backcountry beverage? I'll let you uh, interpret that how you want, whether that's yeah. off the land or uh, if that's something you pack. It, we are water drinkers. So nice. water off the land, nice. basically. Yeah. And do you guys, uh, how do you process the water? Do you Are you sucking it right out of the lake or do you no we're not it? we're not straight lake drinkers. We filter. Um, yeah. Like I say in my book, I, I focus on... Um, a bag, bagged filter, that nice. kind of scenario, like the gravity filter, two bags kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. it works really well for us. So, do you have a preference on uh, on the uh, the brand that you use? I know a buddy of mine was using. Uh, I can't remember what one he had prior to, but he switched it up to one from MEC, and he said it was like night and day. The, oh yeah, the amount of time that he could process some water in. I, I mean, I do have a preference. It's the one that we use all the time, but it's not available anymore. So oh. it's the it's the Sawyer. Sawyer had, this is like five or seven years ago, they had a gravity pack filter, um, two liter. So it's a two liter system, hmm. gray water bag, blue water bag. It filters two liters in like five, 10 minutes. Oh, really? Wow, that's quick. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. We, we just leave it hanging on the tree while we set up the tent. And by the time we're done, We've got water. You got water. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. can even have water just on a quick little lunch break or whatever, right? Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I remember the gravity fed was helpful in Moose Camp, but I also recall being shocked at how much water four guys will fly through um, in a camp setting for sure. So that, oh, yeah. that that fast filter rate seems to be a real selling feature now that I think about it. Yeah. I've been on other trips with like Nature Manitoba or Paddle Manitoba where there's someone in the group who has like a large eight liter water bag or six liter water bag. And that just ends up being like the camp water bags. You always just leave it from hanging from the tree and there's always water in the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Ours, ours is freezing too. So that didn't help. Mm. Yeah. Definitely was a barrier. That would be a problem. Yeah. yeah. So we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't leave it overnight, but um, the, the filter was actually quite plugged up. When we first got there, it was filtering good. And I, I should have back flushed it while we were there because I back flushed it when I came home. And it was just unbelievable how much faster it was. It was pumping out water after yeah. that. Um, yeah, for sure. 
but we were definitely utilizing the the water tabs a lot while when we we're out in moose country there you know out for a day trip or whatever just constantly consuming yeah. water so toss a couple tabs in and away you go um obviously man spending a lot of time on the water you do spend a lot of time fishing as well what's your favorite type of fish to chase after mm. i think our favorite fish to chase after is, is smallmouth smallmouth bass is probably our favorite to, nice. to catch and chase after favorite for eating is still walleye but the most common fish that we we eat if we're fishing to eat is is jack oh yeah northern pike yep yeah 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 fairly easy to uh to, to find obviously in your country there um do you have a favorite way to prepare it uh for us we like i'll fillet it i'll do like the y fillet so i get uh, a back fillet two side fillets um and then we just prep it in pan with a little bit of oil paprika garlic salt that's it nice that sounds good sounds yeah. real good um and then my final question for the five burning questions here is what is your favorite season to adventure in oh definitely summer we're primarily summer adventurers is that right yeah nice how do you uh this year especially has got me thinking about like mosquito management bug management last year it wasn't half as bad but uh this year with yeah. all the water you know it's it's going to be something special so what's your uh, preferred method for bug management out there yeah i mean we've got a couple things um i generally use picardin over deet myself i prefer it um it seems to be just as effective as deet so that that's our preference from a spray perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a thermocell. Uh, we've had spotty results with it, but we carry it and try using it when it gets difficult in the evening in particular. We got one that'll run off of like uh, camp stove fuel. Oh, nice. So the same fuel system that we have as, as our backup for cooking, we can just use for the thermocell. Um, and we've got uh, a Eureka bug tent. Oh, yeah. Like an ultralight dealie that we can hang. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Those thermocells are almost like you have to have almost a perfectly calm evening to, yeah. for, for them to be really effective. Any bit of breeze just, I feel like blows that whatever protection you have out of there. And then you're back to building up the barrier. Yep. For sure. <clears throat> All right. We were using, we were using this old, well, I don't know if it'd be like old wife's tale, but the, someone recommended that we use, egg cartons and light them on fire and they they like create a, oh, yeah. a, a smudge around you right but, but i found that we were essentially just both us and the mosquitoes were now choking on smoke so i mean <laughs> mute now mutual kind of punishment but at the same time it probably wasn't that effective for your outdoor enjoyment yeah oh well live and learn yeah <laughs> truck uh strike that one off the list all right so um Paul, you got a, a bit of an interesting upbringing and I was kind of reading in your bio there on your website about, you know, the first fish you caught and, you know, you grew up in, in eastern Manitoba in an area called the White Shell, which is, well, you spent a lot, you didn't grow up out there, but you, you sounds like you had a family cabin and you can elaborate yep. on that a little bit. But uh, uh, the White Shell is kind of a special place for Tristan and I as well, because we had a cabin out, big White Shell, and we spend a lot of time out there hunting, fishing, eventually sold that cabin, got one in Lee river, which is oh, yeah. a little bit, uh, North East, Northwest, I guess. And, uh, yeah, kind of grew up in that, that area as well. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in, uh, 
in your upbringing here and and the 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 tale you tell about your first fish caught was uh sure had me had me uh certainly engaged <laughs> and and curious so cool, why don't yeah. you tell us a little bit about your upbringing out there yeah so uh up until the time i was five um we spent quite a bit of time at my my grandparents cottage on nudimic lake um they were like a backcountry lot not on the water um, and they kind of had a small development of two cottages beside each other. So like an, uh, a brother of my grandmother had a cottage and then my grandparents had a cottage. So it was, mm -hmm. you know, lots of family events would happen there. And nice. there was always like busy weekends. Um, of course, this is all from a memory of a kid who was five and younger, but yeah. you know, it is what it is. Um, and it was still, it was still at a time when things weren't super modern in cottages here in Manitoba. So it was a, it was an outhouse scenario. The cottage at night was lit by kerosene lamps. Uh, you know, cooking was probably on the barbecue or the stove was maybe propane. I don't think the cottage had electricity. It definitely didn't have running water. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, lots of days hanging out in the yard or going to the beach, um, hiking, picking. I remember picking gooseberries and watching the float planes because there was a, a float plane place at Newtomick at the time. There might still be, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, the my first fish, I was out with my mother's my mother's father had come out with us so not the grandparents who owned the cottage but the grandfather from my other side he was uh, a world war ii veteran and he was like an avid fisherman that was his absolute favorite thing to do he could sit for hours saying nothing just just fishing <laughs> so he and my father and i we'd gone down to i don't know if it was a beach or a boat launch because it was like gravelly and sandy and i kind of remember the car being parked on like the gravel and the sand and I don't know if it was my first time fishing, but it was definitely the first time I caught a fish and I was casting just like a regular, you know, overhand bait caster. And, um, I got a nibble and I, the fish got hooked on the line and I didn't know what to do. I was probably too young to really have had much experience to know. And I don't know that my father or my grandfather had really taught me what to do mm -hmm. if I got a fish. And I'm sure everyone was saying reel up, reel up. And I probably didn't know what that meant. So uh, the most logical thing I could think to do was to just walk backwards to bring the line <laughs> out of the water. So I just kept walking backwards. And the next thing I knew, I had fallen over into a hole and puddle. And uh. I just kind of remember, you know, lying on my back with, you know, my rod in my hand. And the, <laughs> the moments before I fell over, I remembered seeing the fish flopping at like the shoreline. Nice. But the fish was caught and we brought it home and that's awesome that, that was my first fish um what was it do you remember what kind of fish it was it was either jack or walleye um there is a photo of me with it on the website i if i remember correctly from the photo i think it was a walleye nice oh sorry no a, a jack a northern bite. still good still good uh, yeah. we're, we're laughing a bit here but i, I we know someone who ice fishes and they still swear by your method there paul oh yeah <laughs> they, they say the guys on the rod get too clogged up so they just they just run backwards with their line <laughs> <laughs> yeah still you might still be onto effective. something still effective you see people walking backwards all the time shore fishing on loftboard too especially if they they catch oh, yeah. something uh, on light tackle something big that's uh pretty pretty uh, practice method um i can just think about the chaos that ensues i got i got two kids uh three and five the oldest just turned as well and it's uh to to coach 
a child of that age is not the easiest thing to do <laughs> to try yeah. and, you know, really capture their attention for one when they got a fish on and two, actually, you know, explain them to them what, uh, what, what you actually do. want to accomplish here and what to yeah. do. Right. So it can get a bit chaotic at times for sure. So I'm, I'm cur- curious here too. I, I've got a few things I'd love to probe around the old Nudimic there. I, I, I'd only recently been out of there. Um, I think two years back now, a chase, we, we, I visited for the first time. The interesting part about the white shell, I guess, is it's, it's not really pockets of lakes. It's a, it's a series or a chain of lakes that kind of run through the Winnipeg river system uh, on the Eastern side of the province. And you can, in theory, there's just like a, a connection of lakes that you could kind of visit and explore. Um, so that was one of our first times visiting Nudimic and I was struck by just like how deep uh, the lake is itself and at the same time it's kind of like a, a narrow but still very powerful uh, water body yeah uh, just really remarkable piece of water and there's some lake sturgeon in there which makes it rather unique too in some ways I'd imagine I remember reading an article too and they were saying that the a lot of these old cottages used to have brick smokehouses in, in the backyard and and those were actually erected at a time where it was okay to keep sturgeon so folks would smoke sturgeon in the backyard and that's almost foreign for me to think of as a manitoban where there's there's been no uh tag there's been no limit you can't keep sturgeon at all in manitoba at this point in time but uh, apparently there's some relics of a time in in manitoba where the sturgeon fishing was really healthy at some point or at least there might have been a black market for it. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen like what was, what was that cabin culture like back in the in the day? Too? Like I imagine it's a lot different than you know. Obviously, there's big boats out now, and there's all kinds of things happening on the lake. Um, yeah, I mean it's a little tough to say because I was five or younger. Yeah. Um, what I remember is it was very beach oriented for us. So mm-hmm. like the part of the community we were part of was that backcountry lot community, which is definitely different from the waterfront cottages. Right. Um, and I mean, I have experience after at, when I turned five, my parents got a lot in Nopaming and we built mm-hmm. a, a waterfront lot on Flanders Lake in Nopaming. So the rest of, you know, my adolescence and into adulthood cottage time was in that lakefront, um, culture, if you will. Whereas on Nudimic, we were definitely like the beach culture. So it was, you know, um, time at the cottage itself was, you know, lunchtime, dinner, breakfast into the evening kind of thing. But daytime was walk to the beach, hang out at the beach, maybe hike around the beach, that kind of thing. Nice. And then so Nopamine being the park that's just uh, adjacent to the White Shell. I, I, it's yes. on the north side there. North side, yeah. Yeah. Um, what lake, were, if you don't mind me asking, were you on in Nopamine there? Yeah, Flanders Lake. So uh, Flanders Lake is just beside Booster Lake, which is in the section of lakes just where Bird and Tulabi are. Yeah. So actually not terribly far from where you guys are at Lee River. If you continue up mm-hmm. the three, 317, you basically end up in Nopaming, it's maybe 45 minutes from where you guys are to where the Flanders Lake cottage was. Yeah. We've spent some time camping around Bird Lake too. And so we're kind of familiar, I guess, with that, that side of the road too. Yeah. And uh, Chase and I used to have some great fishing back in the day on Euclid, which was up the other way, but uh, a a fun trip nonetheless. Yeah. 
Well, uh, I've never fished Flanders. Is there is there fish in there? Like, what's that? Yeah, what's the scoop? yeah. So Flanders is, is a really good lake for fishing. I mean, I haven't fished there now in probably five years, but I'm sure it's still as good as it was. Um, when we first built there, we were amongst the first cottages built on Flanders Lake, um, and fishing was walleye and pike and perch. Um, and pretty much every night you went out, you came back with some. Nice. Um, maybe five to eight years in, uh, fisheries started stocking the lake. Um, and at some point, smallmouth bass were introduced. So there's some smallmouth mm. um, and there's still walleye, northern pike, perch, sucker, nice. carp, that kind of thing. Hmm. Interesting with the yep. carp. I feel like that, that must have been just the glory days out there when um, kind of the development of that eastern shield country was just happening and you know like you said you were one of the first on on the lake out there yeah. in flanders and you're talking about your grandparents old cabin that's pretty much just like an off-the-grid cabin but on on the on the road kind of thing yep and uh man i bet like fishing pressure was probably low and traffic was probably low and when i when i think back to like well, looking at right now, if you were to try to get a cabin out that way, you'd probably have to pay half a million dollars to get a lot, a decent place out there. Yeah. Yeah. So Nopaming is a provincial park. I guess it's probably like the White Shell where the lots are leased, not purchased, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you're paying for the cottage that's there or the value of the cottage and the lot at this point. Um, they are definitely approaching that price range. Uh, I think when my parents sold, I don't know, I would guess how cottages around that time were three to four fifty kind of thing that's mm -hmm. like seven seven years ago at this point um yeah and and you're right it was you know basically untouched country when when we moved in i remember you know a, a year in kindergarten where we went up to look at the lot and there was a road to the block but the block road wasn't in so we had to hike in for like 45 <laughs> minutes to no get way. to the cottage lot and then we were like you, the surveyor spikes were still there to check out and it was just all trees oh. <laughs> yeah glory days and even even in the first years there it was really cool as a kid that there were like canoes like old wooden canoes on the shoreline in different places that were like rotting and sunk because people had like left them there to hike out and yeah, like yeah. take their canoe to go fishing on flanders and there was a a hut that my father always called the trapper's hut but i don't really know what it was but there was like this hut at one end of the lake not on the side of the development um that had like a, a dugout hole in it and it was probably unsafe to be playing around but we always <laughs> did it's totally gone at this point probably just rotted into the wilderness it's an old trapping trapper's hut or like uh just yeah. backcountry kind yeah. of residence kind of thing yeah oh man that's so cool i love that kind of stuff there's, there's kind of this convergence here eh, of uh, like the, the untouched kind of side of wilderness, but also uh, the the whimsy of youth, I feel like, too, because I can re recall a few adventures. You, you and I, too, Chase, just everything was, if not novel, it was like very exciting to be a part of. And there was adventure around pretty much every corner. Now I'm a little bit more skeptical. <laughs> I, sometimes I worry about what's around the next corner um, because I got to make it home on time. But um yeah. but I, I feel like when we were young it there was there was so much adventure in the world it must yeah. have been it must have been great just having you know a fresh lake as your playground in so many ways yeah it was do you do you, do you recall anything like uh how, how did like 
that impact your journey where you're learning things where you really connecting with uh particular uh tasks or like activities out there at that point in time yeah i mean no question um we learned to canoe at the cottage right and now i'm a canoe instructor and writing books about backcountry food and we built the cottage right like my father built the cottage i think he paid someone to come out and do the foundation um you know in that first year but the rest of it was pretty much us like every weekend we'd be going up to the cottage we i remember being to the so the first time i ever saw the cottage lot was the story i just told about you know walking through the forest and trees everywhere and no road in the whole bit and the second time there was a road to the cottage but the cottage was just a skeleton it was all the you know all the walls were built but they weren't they weren't um coated they weren't sheeted in any way and we were we all had push brooms and we were pushing the water around um, <laughs> there were all these like cutouts in the the floor um, the floor plate in the in the wall structure so that you could push the water through and get it <laughs> off while they were still putting the roof up and everything right so there's that whole aspect of, of things and all of the lots in the area were in that same state right so all the cottages were getting built some were getting built professionally some the person who'd bought the lot was building the cottage and there were kids you know every every cottage had kids and so we'd all get together and we'd pool the resources of like the cutoffs right there was like cut off osb and cut off two by four so um we would build forts yeah probably every weekend we'd be building a fort out of two by fours and osb and roofing nails and like whatever was left around that was just kind of left over sort of thing um today i teach wood shop i mean that's not my my every day, but um, I'm part of the Bronx community woodshop where I teach like, you know, intro woodworking and woodworking too, and a bunch of stuff like that. And I really think that that whole, that whole skill set started developing from that environment of doing that kind of work. Nice. I think, I think about some of the forts we built growing up too. And I'm, I uh, look back at them now. I'm like, holy smokes! I can't believe we used to play and stuff like that. <laughs> oh yeah, death death trap for sure, right? Like, yeah. no question. Big time. Yeah. Oh man. Um. So, uh, what? Uh, like, so besides growing up on Flanders, or like, yeah, out and, and like, uh, kind of sinking your roots into the the White Shell Nopaming area there, and then kind of well setting your roots in at Flanders, really. Yeah. Did you guys experiment getting out from Flanders or was like Flanders pretty much um, your your main exploration ground growing up? Pretty much. So like in that in that initial time period, one to five, where my grandparents had the cottage, Mm -hmm. my parents would take us camping, too. So I can remember trips to like Blue Lake and Duck Mountain, you know, that kind of that kind of weekend away doing that sort of thing. But once we got the cottage, that stopped. Um, yeah. The rest of, you know, my my youth to my adolescence from there was at the cottage kind of every weekend. And we didn't really we didn't really do much exploring around um, that kind of all changed. Um, my wife and I were going up more regularly, you know, like you reach a point, say, like university age where you kind of don't go to the cottages often anymore. You've got some more freedom. You've got to do work uh, right. You're, you're employed some of the time. So you can't go up every weekend and you kind of go away from the cottage for a while. And then um, probably around the time that my wife and I were like 25, 26, we started doing the cottage more often. 
And there were some summers where we would go out, you know, maybe every second weekend, or I think there was one summer where we went every weekend because we were kind of taking care of the cottage a little bit while my parents had to have a hiatus. And um, my wife and I, we started, well, we had a vehicle with roof racks. So we started just putting the canoe on the roof racks and we'd go to other lakes around Nopaming to check out, like we'd paddle at Tulabi or we'd go to nice. Booster Lake or Bird Lake and paddle. Um, and we started doing whole days out um, that was probably the first time that we did, I started doing whole days out on the canoe where uh, Flanders is connected to another lake called Summerhill Lake. And that lake is connected to Bird Lake, uh, sorry, Booster Lake. And we would do a circuit. So we'd start our day and we'd, you know, do the 5K or 3K or whatever it is up Flanders Lake and do the portage into Summerhill over four beaver dams. Um, and then we'd fish Summerhill all day and we'd either come back through the portage or we would kind of do a, a portage through another cottage on booster so we had friends on booster where we'd ask if we could like just you know walk through their yard with our canoe and then cross the road and then hike down the hill again into flanders right across from the cottage so mm -hmm. we started doing that pretty regularly i think most of the weekends we were out we were kind of doing that that trip nice See, I, I, I have been to Summerhill though, and I got, I accessed it through Booster mm -hmm. um, because there, there is a kind of a creek that connects a both creek. of them. Yeah. It definitely was one of the more, I don't want to say sketchier boating experiences I've, I've had, but we had to keep our Lund on step through that creek. And it, it's, oh, yeah. a, it's a windy one. So you're kind of like on step at the same time where I would normally be exercising a lot of caution. So I was not completely sure how that turned out was going to turn out, but we, we kept our bottom end intact. And at the end of the day, I think I bounced off a cattail or two like a few yeah. times, but yeah. uh, other than that, it most of the, it turned out pretty good for the most part, but yeah, it, it is. A, it's a really interesting water system the way I, I would not expect that little windy Creek to, to come out in another lake but that's just kind of the way the white shell is too i'd imagine eh? it's how how these or the or nopamine too that's how they yeah. they they feed each other and uh go like that right yeah exactly like there and there are river systems in nopamine but a lot of those lakes aren't connected with the river system like um booster flows into summer hill flows into flanders uh and then there's another lake that flows into flanders called mcnab and we've brought the canoe up there as well, but it's like super shallow. It's basically like a huge pond that flows in. But then from there, you can follow a bunch of other streams that bring you to like Mary Jane and uh, I think Whitlock's down that way. Uh, and it all follows along this logging road. So at the, at the end of all the block roads on Flanders, the road kind of keeps going, but it's this old, old logging road that basically has, it's gravel, but it, it's got two tracks and it, big holes and steep, steep hills and it's not wouldn't recommend it in a car i can say that because my father tried um, it's <laughs> not not a great experience <laughs> but uh, my wife and my um, in-laws and i we've hiked that quite a few times we've hiked as far as mary jane lake and yeah nice cool. i'm just i'm just doing a quick little uh map check map check of everything here yeah it's i know all, like a lot of other together another a lot of the other locals at flanders had atvs and they would spend days you know going up that track and going to those lakes some of them had boats that they hauled out on their atvs and left at those lakes so they could go fish those lakes and i know there's lots of hunting that goes on back there yeah 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 looks like flanders would be a great spot to hang out to and on the on the windy days it's long and narrow so it doesn't look like you yes. get a whole bunch of 
whitecaps out there. You do, but not all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's it's definitely more protected. Uh, in my later teen years, I took up windsurfing at Flanders. Oh, so nice. There were definitely days where there was enough wind to get some fun out of that, but yeah, not yeah. a lot of not a lot of jumps. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So, um, I, I guess like we haven't really told anyone the main reason why you're on the podcast here <laughs> yet, <laughs> but uh, but you have this cookbook. Um, yeah, and you kind of described it more as a meal assembly book which yeah. kind of makes sense as well but but it's it's kind of exciting to me to to think about this it, it, the the cookbook's called feast on adventure yeah and uh why don't you just describe it a little bit for us right now yeah okay so feast on adventure is uh, a book <clears throat> that documents the way that my family prepares meals for backcountry adventures uh and i call it a meal assembly book because it's all about taking ingredients dry ingredients, mixing them together to create a meal, and then later on adding hot water, mostly. Um, so it's really kind of the idea of like um, mountain house meals or backpacker, backpacker gourmet kind of things that you can buy at Mech or whatever, but made by you, uh, assembled at home, uh, making different meals than you would be able to get elsewhere, making meals that are really great in my opinion from a flavor perspective and allow you to manage dietary restrictions mm -hmm. so um i in some of the other conversations i've had with people about the book i say that this book is diet agnostic in that it's not uh it's not a gluten-free book it's not a vegan book it's not a regular person book it's a book for everybody um a lot of the material that's in it is designed around uh teaching you about how things go together um, there's actually a section about how you can take a recipe that you really like on a regular day, like let's say, um, well, Sloppy Joe is one example that I do in a, a YouTube video on how to take like a standard Sloppy Joe recipe and convert it into something that you can make in a dried format where you just add water when you get to the end of your trip um, so that you've got a really great meal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I cover lots of information about uh, substitutions for people who are vegan, people who have soy allergies, people who are dairy-free, gluten-free, et cetera, just to help manage that whole kind of lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, totally. So th there's a couple of reasons why I I'm really excited about this book as well. And uh, first off, our, our buddy Quentin Blair intro introduced us to the to the book and, and he came down for a podcast a couple of weeks ago and he's like, you guys gotta check this book out. And cool. I was flipping through. Hey, and I was like, "This is amazing!" Literally whipped, literally whipped it out of his bag. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, whipped cool. it out of his guitar case. He's like, "Here, check this out." And uh, so I started digging into it a little bit and and doing some reading and watch your videos and stuff. And and uh, my my I, I've been trying to plan this this trip out west for a few years now, but kind of COVID's been putting an adapter on that and. And uh, just my, my free time pretty much has been putting a, the amount of free time that I have now has been putting a dampener on that. But um, obviously it would be a backcountry hunting trip uh, with a friend of mine. And I hear all these kind of horror stories about like the, if you're eating those freeze dried meals for like a week straight, they're really hard on your gut. The ones that you buy at the store, right? Yes. And, and yeah. I was trying to explore a little bit um, around the, uh, uh, the like make your own freeze dried meals, and I talked to a couple of the mountain guys, and they're 
they kind of pointed me in some direction, but there wasn't no like definitive direction or no definitive literature or anything to kind of follow. So then when I seen the book, I'm like, this is amazing. Here we go. And, but the, the thing that kind of caught my eye too, when I was doing some reading on you, you kind of said you guys like to focus on adventure, not cooking fresh, That's but right. these meals are like some kick-ass meals in your cookbook. And the the thing that kind of brings it back too is that you mentioned that Winnipeg's kind of the melting pot of uh, central Manitoba here, where you do get some really great culinary experiences in the city there, and that's kind of played a role as well in the development absolutely. of your cookbook, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I've explored, I guess, just in my professional lunchtime life, right? Like I, I worked in an office for a number of years and it was uh, a common occurrence to, you know, go for lunch. And I mean, I've been cooking, I, I'm the primary cook at home and I have been for gosh, almost 20 years now. Right. So um, I've spent a lot of time developing skills, cooking and tasting things. And I kind of became the de facto at work guy for when someone wanted to know where we should go, I would try new places or already have, you know, good ideas of where we should go because I know what's really great there kind of thing. Um, and that kind of translated itself into the book, kind of an exploration of different foods and cultures that are here locally that you can kind of experience in a bunch of different places uh, and kind of picking my favorites from that kind of area. And then taking the spin of what I already did with those foods kind of at home on a regular weeknight and turning it into something that you can take in the back country. Mm -hmm. So that really, really kind of inspired those, those kind of concepts. Um, and another side point to that is that looking at different foods culturally um, kind of opens you to a lot more of those opportunities for diet agnosticism in terms of there are more, I guess the more varied styles of food you look at, the more opportunities there are to say, hey, well, that's a really great carb we could use, like polenta, for example, um, and mix that with a chili instead of a bun. And now I've got something that's gluten free instead of something that would have gluten in it. Right. Mm. Or I can look at something from, you know, the Asian landscape and say, well, traditionally they don't have a lot of dairy in it. So here's a really good opportunity for someone to consider, you know, a dairy free option that's still you know, really great. Like you would, you know, you'd love to go out for a chow mein sometime anyway. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that that really lended itself to kind of the concepts that were front of mind as I was developing the recipes in the first place, just for my family and then resulting in ultimately a book that I could share with anyone. Yeah. It, it's kind of like where fusion cooking comes from. I'd imagine this, this kind of merger of different culinary skill sets and ingredients and things like that. It's, it's really, and something, something totally different almost emerges out the other end in some ways, still familiar, but different in a lot of ways. Um, I'm wondering too, like one of, one of the things I, I'm appreciating about the book is it's, there's, it's instructive as well. It's not just a, a compilation of recipes or, the, the flip side of that being, you know, when you go try to access a, a recipe online and it's got a 16 paragraph write up of someone's Italian aunt and every tomato paste she's ever tried. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but there's some more practical uh, tips around, you know, what it means to, to cook and, you know, things that we should be looking for. And you, you even have like uh, 
a section on the principles of flavor. Like yeah. what, what, what are we digging into when we're talking about principles of flavor there that I found that super intriguing. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been really interested in food for a long time and I read a lot just in general about lots of things. And I spent a lot of time reading about food. Um, and when I, you know, was just in university, I discovered Cooks Illustrated, which is a magazine you can pick up at the grocery store or subscribe to or whatever. And they really had that philosophy of every recipe comes with an article that talks about like how they came up with the recipe and all of the food science that applied and how they got there. Um, and I mean, that's not what I do in my book. I don't think like there's sections to talk about, like you said, the, the, flavor profiles and how how we come up with a good flavor profile um that's not attached to every recipe like cooks illustrated is but that was kind of like that developed that foundational knowledge in me about the the food science behind flavor and and even like processes and what different cooking processes add to your food and all that kind of thing um and then i read a book by harold mcgee called on food and cooking it's like a huge book. Most people aren't going to read it. It's probably really dry to a lot of people, but it's just all science of food and flavor. Uh, and that really got me to that page because I really thought it was important. So I think what I think what you've said just now is basically exactly what my book is. It's two parts. One part is how and why, and the other part is here's recipes, just make them and it'll be great. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was really important to me. I didn't think it was enough to give out a book of recipes because you can go and get recipes anywhere. You can find recipes online. There's other, there's even other freeze dried, dried food books that you can get elsewhere and put together and tons of recipes. There's, there's books that claim to have like 250 recipes in them. Right. And it's really just, you know, there's maybe 20 sauce recipes and 30 mm -hmm. other recipes. And when you mix the two together, you get the, you know, your 250 recipes. And I wanted to focus on a good solid foundation of these are the recipes that I think are really good, that are going to turn out really well in the backcountry for you. And also you should know, well, maybe not, you should know, but if you want to know about like how I got there and what you can do yourself to do it, this is what you need to know. And the principles of flavor are really the key thing uh, to that. And I thought that everyone should I thought I would want to tell people that these are really the things you want to look for in your recipes. So things like the fifth sense umami, the, the fifth taste, um, which is this idea of fullness of the flavor in your mouth. Like if you've ever eaten something and you just thought like it was, it was all there, it was all there in your mouth. It, you tasted it the whole time. It, you didn't taste just one thing. It didn't taste too salty. It didn't taste too sweet. It all tasted perfectly and it was all just full in there that that's what umami is and it's a really really key thing if you want to have something at the end of your night when you've been paddling all day that just tastes really really good so what are the things we can do to add that into our into our meal right and we're making meals for adventure we need to have carbohydrates so how are we going to make sure that there's energy in our meal how are, what are the protein choices that we're going to make to, to make sure that we're getting you know the the things that our body needs to recover from a day of hiking all day or skiing all day or canoeing all day or whatever. Right. So that was really the, the point there. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that because um, I, I'm by no means Canada's top chef. 
Um, and it's still very much on my culinary journey, but I, I feel like that's how I kind of learned to cook myself was I took some established recipes, but then I was also kind of learning what, what are the principles behind those recipes? Hey, if I, if I use a tomato, which is actually a really good source for acid and pair it with some fat and a little bit of salt, things are going to turn out pretty good. Most of the yeah. time, add some herbs to brighten it up. And all of a sudden you got something that's really really fantastic with not a lot of ingredients and then like you said you can plug and play those ingredients from there okay maybe i don't have tomatoes what else can i use for acid in this dish things like that right once you start to understand those principles a little bit more through practice and maybe a little bit of reading like you've said um it really like to me opened up what i could be doing here oh for sure i think one one cool thing that i took away too um from uh from your stuff is like you're, you're even starting to incorporate some of this into the practicality of, of the backcountry. And one of the dishes, I think it was in one of your YouTube videos where you had said, pack the chicken separate from the rice. So if you want to eat the rice with some fish, you can have fresh yeah. fish with your rice and then save the chicken for later kind of thing instead yeah. of incorporating the entire dish and, and wham, bam, away you go kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that might be the the chicken shawarma, or it might have been the uh, lemon chicken. Sorry, the chicken souvlaki with lemon potatoes. Right? So, yeah, I think it was so, yeah, the you, chicken shawarma because I'm like, in my mind, I was like, all right, yeah, okay. And right away, I'm I'm thinking barracas, and yeah. where, where do I get the shawarma yeah, spice? Absolutely. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, shawarma is often paired with like that uh, yellow rice, right? And so I have a recipe for both pieces that are separate. And yeah, that's exactly it. Like um, we, <laughs> my wife and I, uh, so I have two recipes that we call spare rice and spare potatoes. Um, so and we usually just keep those as extra meals in the bag, right? Like we, so we canoe trip mostly, which I think is probably clear by now from some of the other things we've said. But um, when you plan for that kind of trip, you can get windbound, right? So you could end up needing an extra day before you can come back. So it's always good practice to plan an extra meal or two to have on hand. And we just let that be our spare rice or our spare potatoes. But we might end up pulling those out earlier if we got to have a good fishing day, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to pull a prepared meal. We'll pull our our spare potatoes and have that with our, our jackfish that night. And then you know, the, the meal that becomes the extra meal in case we get stuck is something else that we've already prepared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, in, uh, how long did it take you to put all this together? Like when did the idea come to you and like how, what was your process here for, for, uh, um, completing this book? Yeah. So I, I mean, I don't think I've said this already, but, um, my wife has a number of food allergies and, so really this project started when we started canoe tripping regularly mm. and we couldn't, we couldn't just go buy meals that would work for her because she, she has to be gluten-free. She has to be dairy-free. Uh, there's a few other things and that just complicated things. So right off the hop from when we started canoeing regularly, I started trying to figure out how we could make meals from dried ingredients. Um, and as much as we've talked a few times during this session about freeze-dried foods, it's not just about freeze-dried foods. All of these recipes can make, be made with dehydrated foods. Um, and when we do talk about freeze-dried, e even, sorry, and when we talk about freeze-dried or dehydrated food, um, it can be stuff that you prepared at home or it can be stuff that you purchased at a grocer or online, that kind of thing, right? So um, our initial runs were 
strictly dehydrated. We had a dehydrator. We'd been dehydrating things like banana chips and apples for a long time. So a lot of our meals just came right out of the dehydrator. We dehydrate jerky or whatever. So it probably took me about four years to develop, you know, five key recipes that were kind of in our regular rotation that we really liked. Um, and around that same time, five years in is when we started ordering like freeze dried chicken or freeze dried, uh, well, freeze dried beef, freeze dried chicken. Um, we'd ordered some freeze dried vegetables like corn or peas uh, and started mixing those into the, into the things we were doing. And by then I thought I had a really good foundation and I kind of knew I wanted to write a book. So from that point on, it was like, okay, what can we actually develop recipe wise? That's going to mm. be really good that we're going to like. And how do I turn that into a story, uh, a package of instruction plus recipes, and then result in the book. Uh, so I would say ignoring that five year period, putting that to the side <laughs> of just development for the sake of development with my family, uh, it's probably two years of recipe development and then six months of writing and working with editors and doing book layout and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. No kidding. What, yeah. uh, so, uh, obviously in the recipe, you, you said it a bunch of times we're working with dehydrated foods or freeze dried food. What's, what's the biggest difference between de dehydrated and freeze dried? Or Absolutely. The biggest difference is ultimate texture. Um, like, Dehydrated food, there's no getting around it, is going to be left with some crunch even after you've added hot water and let it sit for a while. Mm -hmm. Even if you boil it for a while, you, you know, your jerky is still going to be tough to chew. Um, vegetables like peas that are fully encoded in their their outer skin layer, like they they never, in my opinion, they never rehydrate to like what it's like at home. Mm -hmm. Whereas freeze-dried food does. So freeze-dried food is often lighter. So from a weight perspective, that's that's a nice piece. But the big the big difference is texture. Um, when all you have to do is add hot water, you wait five minutes, and the texture is almost it's almost impossible to tell the difference in texture between the burrito bowl that I made for dinner tonight and the burrito bowl that I'll eat next week. No when way. I'm out camping, right? Wow, that's incredible. I like that. That constantly like I I. Another musician friend of ours, Del Barber, um, we had kind of this conversation about um, hunting the backcountry, and and we obviously spend quite a bit of time hunting, and we we kind of um, dream about you know these trips, and we talk about stuff and what we would do and all this, and in his kind of his biggest thing was always too against he was always against the freeze dried stuff, and he's like, you know, there's there's the guys out there that are food is just fuel food is just fuel in the mountains kind of thing and he's like i don't believe that and he's like you know bring stuff that you enjoy to eat and and then you're uh, having that battle in your mind because if you're not packing freeze-dried stuff then you gotta manage spoilage and all this stuff right so yeah yeah then, absolutely but this is like man you can have like awesome awesome meals in the backcountry okay yeah and and when you're spending lots of time in the backcountry like that a good meal lifts your spirits like nothing else right so it's for sure and i think that a lot of that um oh what's the word i'm looking for a lot Unami. of that <laughs> a lot of that concern around freeze-dried food i think stems from the fact that like 10 years ago you couldn't just get freeze-dried ingredients mm -hmm. you know your choice was the meal or nothing yeah and not all those meals were great. And a lot of those meals, even today, have a lot of high salt content. Right. And 
you know, there's a lot of feelings of people like, you know, it says two servings when it's really only one. And that's because they're trying to make that, a you know, uh, nutrition label objective of total mm. calories for one serving kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, no one, no one thinks it's really one serving because it's not. Um, and I think that you get a lot more opportunity, a lot more variation in what you can do when you start just with ingredients. Um, one of the things I say in the book is like minute rice is just so cheap and ubiquitous. Like why wouldn't you use it in that scenario? Mm-hmm. All you have to do is use hot water to heat it. It's exactly the same as normal rice effectively. And you know, it's light to carry. You can, yeah, a, a huge thing of, of a huge thing of minute rice can cost like five to eight bucks these days Yeah, and it's going to last you the whole summer. And yeah, I don't know why you wouldn't use things like that. Lots of backcountry tripping with that sucker. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering too, Paul. Like, if as we're exploring kind of the the divergence here from traditional style cooking into more the the, the freeze dried realm, is there is there any kind of major differences you need to be on the lookout for? Things that maybe don't translate over as easily to your to your recipes or something like that, or even just techniques that you would have to be aware of to kind of make that jump from uh frying mushrooms in the pan to to you know rehydrating them in your pouch or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, so I think like <sighs> or foods that just don't work for example in in the freeze dried context or does everything work to some extent? Cheese doesn't work as good. I I find it's difficult to find a cheese that you can purchase that will like melt again, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're cooking with things like cheese that's probably not not a great choice um with the exception of like some powdered cheeses right like if you're okay with craft dinner you can make a pretty good backcountry macaroni with using like katie shaker or getting some powdered cheeses online powdered parmesan still makes like a good alfredo sauce kind of thing um mm-hmm. but if you're looking for like a pizza that's not going to happen at a freeze <laughs> freeze-dried world unless unless you have your own freeze dryer like i do and you want to freeze dry the food and just eat it dry which can be good too in some cases, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's things that you know don't turn out like baking. You're not gonna you're not gonna have a croissant from a freeze dried meal. But um, most everything else, I think there is a way to do it, and there is a way to do it well. I think what's interesting is that you get options in terms of how you prep it. Most of my meals, but not all, you just add hot water. Wait five ten minutes, and you've got a meal that you can eat. Um, most of those are kind of like casserole style dishes anyway, right? Like that would be the, uh, the similar thing that you could make at home. Um, but there are some that you still fry up. Like most of the egg dishes for breakfast, you rehydrate and you got to wait five or 10 minutes until the egg becomes egg again. And then you still put it in the pan and fry it. Um, the, the thing to watch out for with things like that would be that there's more water at that point than there would be in fresh food. Like mm. same with your mushrooms, Tristan, right? Like if um, you rehydrate your mushrooms and throw them in the pan with some oil and maybe some powdered soy or liquid soy, if that's what you've, you know, indulged yourself with, uh, you're going to wait a little longer for that to cook off to get like that crispy exterior and that extra flavor kind of mm-hmm. thing. Um, but there's also other ways to accomplish that same kind of flavor deal mm-hmm. uh, in different ways. So, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And I'm, I'm wondering too, then is, I'm thinking to like some of the the real simple meals there too, uh, like 
that I would imagine traditionally are the the rehydrated ones, like the chilies and the the, the casseroles, like the stroganoff. Um, some of those I'd imagine almost taste just as good, if not better, like in, in some of the recipes that you've developed because of the, the just the way that I'm imagining all the ingredients would have a time to meld and uh, yep. really get together in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's it's kind of funny in that if I if I talk about my sloppy Joe, I did like a side by side test. I think even in that video, I, so I do a video where I explain how you convert the recipes for a sloppy Joe, and then we actually make the sloppy Joe, and you can see both, and they they look different, but they both look like sloppy Joe, and they both taste a little different, but they both taste like sloppy Joe. You know what <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean? Like they're yeah. both good versions of sloppy Joe. They're just not exactly the same kind of thing. And I think that that's really true of most of these meals that um, they're like the burrito bowl tastes like a burrito bowl. If you had them side by side, you, you might not be able to tell which one was fresh, but you would know that they were both different somehow. Mm -hmm. They both are good burrito bowls, right? Interesting. Interesting. And then I'd imagine too, like one of the main ingredients with everything that's happening here is, is water is, how important is your like your water source and managing that and, yeah. uh, and uh, just, you know, yeah. what you're looking out for? Yeah. So and that's that's a real key thing. And there is a page or two on that in the book. That's kind of where I talk about the water filter that we talked about at the beginning of the session. I mean, it is really important to use potable water, right? Um, you if you're conserving fuel, if you're a hiker or a canoer, you're definitely conserving fuel. You're not bringing tons of fuel with you for the week. So most of the time you're bringing your water, water to a boil, you're not leaving your water to boil, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not, if you're not leaving your water to boil, you're not necessarily making it potable. Um, so when you pour it over your food, you're potentially contaminating it if you're pulling it from a contaminated source. So mostly just make sure you're working with potable water, which means making sure you have a filter or you're using tablets and you're letting them sit long enough. Um, you know, you're doing all the right things to filter. Um, and then the other thing to be aware of is just where the water is going to be unsafe, right? Like there's no getting around that you probably don't want to filter like filtering water from the red river probably still isn't safe enough with the runoff that's in it and the potential for there being like hard metals and stuff like that. that could be really unsafe to be uh, ingesting. Um, and you want to be worried about places like meditation Lake in the white shell that has a standing blue green algae bloom where, you know, those toxins, once they're created in the water, that's not going through a standard filter. So if you don't have the appropriate tools to deal with those kind of things that are now in our environment, you need to plan ahead for those things. Well, that's a bit of an eye opener for me because like we spend quite a bit of time around meditation, lake hunting. And mm. now I'm thinking like, cause that was always like the kind of like getting right on the edge of that backcountry lakeish kind of stuff and kind of pristine. But now it's like dangerous. To yeah. Be yeah. gathering water out of there it's not always it depends yeah. on what the bloom scenario is right mm -hmm. but it uh, they have a population of blue green algae and it's gonna bloom this summer i would say highly likely that yeah. it's gonna bloom right and like yeah yeah something to think about I, i'm kind of curious about uh about the journey here too and and what if there's any major learning points that stand out to you that that you've encountered along the way because I, I imagine there there is quite a bit of learning that would happen on this. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was all experimentation early on. And I think, I mean, I talked about how difficult it is to re rehydrate dehydrated foods to a point where the texture's nice. I think that really surprised me. I really thought peas, if you boiled them for a while, would end up soft. Like, why wouldn't they, right? Mm -hmm. But they really don't. Um, I was surprised that you there are things that you can dehydrate that will rehydrate well um specifically things that are canned like canned turkey or canned chicken or uh things like that like you can can those meats and they will rehydrate uh, sorry dehydrate those canned meats and they will rehydrate really well and hmm. i really think that that's because they're treated under pressure right, right? they're they're done under pressure and that pressure is going to break a bunch of cells in 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 the product and all those breakages are going to just be areas for water to come in when right. you rehydrate them kind of thing. I think the other thing that was really, uh, I mean, maybe if you think about it, it's not so surprising, but like I made a couple meals with like polenta or I made spaghetti uh, for my first try kind of thing. And I just put everything together in the bag and added water and thought, oh yeah, this is going to be fantastic. But even like the freeze dried meats and freeze dried vegetables wouldn't rehydrate with the polenta because the polenta just keeps sucking up water. Like you, can, <laughs> you can you can overhydrate polenta and it just keeps taking and none of the water gets to the other stuff. Or with the spaghetti, um, I thought I'd figured out ratios perfectly. So when I added the water, uh, you'd get a nice thick sauce, but also the noodles would be ready to go. And you either put too little water and the sauce was thick, but the noodles were crunchy, or you put too much water and the noodles were were perfect, but the sauce was, you know, a soup kind of thing. So um, it, it, at the end of that, I just basically discovered that there are different kinds of bases, right? Whether those be noodles or rice yeah. or potato or, or polenta or whatever, where you have to consider what's the right way to package this? What's the right way to rehydrate it? And some of those, you have to rehydrate the polenta separate from the sauce that's going to go with it kind of thing. 100% would have been a mistake that I'd, I'd make too because uh, I was thinking in my mind one of the backcountry meals that I wanted to make was like uh, a dehydrated spaghetti and I was like ah oh, it should be easy enough just make the spaghetti mix it all up chop up the noodles put it on yeah. the dehydrator get to go <laughs> I guess not yeah. yeah no not so much yeah and I I'm, I'm wondering too like if, if we flip back to the other side of that spectrum with meals that work really well in a, in a single bag we'll say um, uh, I can imagine again, that's might be like some of those chilies and, and whatnot. Um, do you just, do you at times find yourself bringing like a larger bag of those and something you could just reseal and, and scoop out as, as you need, or is it, is everything pretty much packaged per portion? What do you say? We, we do per portion. Um, yeah. that way you kind of know ahead of time that you're planning calories correctly. If you're doing that sort of thing. Um, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do it the other way. I think the, the one caution I would have doing one big bag is that over the trip, that's going to change because certain things are going to settle to the bottom, mm. right? So you're not going to get the same mix all along the trip. Um, yeah. So for, for us, I don't think we would change. I, I, we like doing it as single servings. I would say the one thing we don't do as single servings is the egg dishes because we're cooking for two anyway. So I'll put two people of egg in one bag and two people of the rest of the stuff in another bag and do them separately that way. Mm -hmm. The chili, if you put it all in one bag, it starts off as sloppy joes and ends up as a bean dip at the end of the trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> or vice yeah. versa. However, they settle. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. At at what point in in uh, in the development journey here did you end up purchasing a freeze dryer? Actually, after the book was published. Oh, really? So yeah, nice. the the book. I really wanted the book to be accessible, so everything in the book can be made from things that you can buy. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that you can dehydrate at home. So I really wanted people to have that option. I didn't want it to be like, oh, you have to get a freeze dryer or, oh, you have to dehydrate everything at home. Like there's people who just want to go out for a weekend and you know they don't want to buy a dehydrator. They don't want to spend a whole week dehydrating food before they prep their meals to go. And a lot of the stuff you can just get at the grocery store these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Asian markets are a really great place to find weird things that are dehydrated that you've never thought of before, like fried onion right? Uh, it just gives you a, a plethora of, of options in terms of how you prep things. Um, and there's lots of things available online these days. So I started doing online presentations for the book. I would take people through making a meal and a lot of the concepts that I had prepared in the book for, for understanding why we're doing things that we're doing. Um, and I was kind of doing one a week when the book first released, uh, kind of started getting expensive. And uh, we live in St. Anne, Manitoba now. Uh, near Steinbach mm. and we were at EG Penner one day in Steinbach and they had them on sale. They had like a 10% sale off on the, the freeze dryers there. And I'd been talking about getting one for a while um, because, you know, that's exciting to me regardless of yeah. book, or, book or not. And uh, my wife pretty much said, you're going to buy one at some point. You might as, well <laughs> buy it. You might as well buy it while it's on sale. So we did. I've I've got that one before too. You you've been talking about this for four years. Just go and buy one. I don't want to hear you talk about it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I do appreciate how the 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 book is broken down into the sections in the sense of degree of difficulty. I think that that's just another way to make the the approach that more accessible. The other thing, Chase, I got going in my mind here too. You're you're thinking about your backcountry trip, but I'm I'm also thinking. I don't know how you feel, Chaser, but about this this really cool interplay that could be happening where you're you're prepping freeze dried meals, um, but now you're also using those meals to to get you out into a place where maybe you're you're harvesting an animal or you're you're foraging for products that are are going to somehow find their way back into your freeze-dried meals for your neck so it's like this cycle oh, yeah. almost <laughs> yeah cool yeah. i'm really yeah. thinking about too like like originally my 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 thoughts of like the the lightweight packing had had come in when i was starting to plan that that mountain trip but now even this year i'm thinking like i got drawn for elk this year um, it's mainly going to be, I think, weekend hunting for me, maybe a few days off during the week kind of thing. But at that point, I, I don't really have like a set week. And, and if I'm going solo into, uh, the bush or whatever, it'd be really nice to be able to like make a bunch of these freeze dried meals, have them prepared. And then I don't have to worry about planning groceries for every time mm-hmm. I want to go out. Like if I get an opportunity to go out during the week for the day or whatever, I can just have them in my basement, ready to roll, grab a couple bags and out the door you go and you're in your set, you know, you don't have to worry about packing yeah. steaks or packing chicken. And then, you know, how a cooler gets once it gets thawed out and there's ice. I, I was going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Paul has never seen one of our coolers at camp because <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My wife and I, we just did that last weekend. We prepped for probably two months. 
nice. um, just meals all ready to go. They'll stay in a plastic tote downstairs until it's time to pack up. Um, it just makes a ton of sense. Oh, that's so cool. I like that. So I guess a lot of it comes down to is, is planning your adventures through the year and then, and then uh, you can order all this stuff that you need or process it yourself, right? Yep. That's so cool. Yep. And even not knowing your the adventures you're planning, like I I ended up going to Calgary for a week for Ringette Nationals as a, a referee supervisor, and I just pulled a week's worth of freeze dried stuff that I had, so that I you know I was going to be at the rink all day. I didn't know if I was going to be able to go anywhere to get food. Mm-hmm. I have a little collapsible travel kettle that I take with me on these trips, and yeah, nice. That's what I had for lunch every day. Yeah, it's so, cool. At least you're guaranteed something decent, something healthy, and and uh, something you know yep. what what what's in it, right? Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious. You got the freeze freeze dryer, obviously a dehydrator. Are you working on a backcountry bourbons and beer version of this? <laughs> <laughs> if only, right? Um, yeah. I yeah, that's still going to be pretty difficult until they figure out a good way to get alcohol in a powder form. I know there is a, a thing they did with maltodextrin that I think uh, is effective, but I don't think it's lightweight. I don't think it resulted in it being any lighter. It just made it powder so it won't like evaporate or spill. Kind of huh. You can scrape huh, it out of the bottom of your hiking bag and yeah. mix it in with all the dirt and dirty socks. I do know that the freeze dryer uh, sucks out all the alcohol. Oh, yeah. Along with the water. So, so that no doesn't work there. at all. No. Yeah. Um, I, I guess like part of the reason, I guess you were talking about the, the benefit of, of, you know, well, the, how freeze dried foods, uh, are a lot better than dehydrated foods. And you kind of mentioned that there before too, how, um, the processed foods dehyd when dehydrated come back better as well. But, and and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the freezing process ruptures, many of the cells in the food right which allows the food to uptake and rehydrate better correct yeah so correct absolutely as where dehydration just sucks the moisture out and those cells stay intact right interesting okay cool i didn't i i didn't even know that was a a thing before we had this conversation so that's definitely something to think about as well yep and i do find that frozen vegetables dehydrate rehydrate better when dehydrated so Mm -hmm. um since you guys are local, uh, Sobeys Cash and Carry on Arlington or Dufferin, I suppose, near the Arlington Street Bridge, um, they sell like food service frozen product, like pre-prepped stuff where mm. like you can get uh, omelet mix. I don't know if you've ever been to the Fort Gary for breakfast when they have the, the buffet and you can mm. get the omelet station and they've got like the diced pepper and onion there already prepped kind of thing. We can buy like for five bucks a huge bag of that stuff frozen and mm. just put it out on sheets in your dehydrator and that stuff rehydrates great wow mm. that's really interesting got the local knowledge here too that's awesome yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh gear wise when you're when you're not only just when you're cooking the stuff but also like the the bags and stuff like that is there is there things that you need to be on the lookout for here when you're i i like to have a bowl that's insulated uh, and i rehydrate in a bowl uh, other people rehydrate in the bag and that's fine. Some of them will make like a, a, a koozie, if you will, for their bag to make sure that it stays insulated. Having something insulated, just make sure that you keep the temperature up while rehydration is going on. And that's really important. So that's probably the primary thing. Other than that, something to boil water, something to 
rehydrate your meal in and something to eat it with like a spork or a spoon or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, if you are doing some of the meals that require, you know, a skillet, you need to have a skillet and, you know, some kind of fuel to cook over. You know what? I was without a spork last year and that was the first year it happened to me in many years. And I, I did not realize how weird it felt to not, <laughs> not, not just have the spork in the back. I, uh, yeah, I didn't bring it to moose camp and I was, I, it, it let me down a few times. So there's, there's two fresh ones in my pack right now. I haven't used them this year yet, but hopefully soon. Yeah. I, you know, on that, actually, I'm wondering just even stepping away from the food in general is, is you spend a lot of time canoeing and such. Is, is there something that always makes it into your pack or something that you're always sure to throw in the canoe or something or whatever your outdoor adventure might be? I mean, we have a pretty standard kit at this point and we do benefit from canoeing. And so we aren't, we aren't ultra lightweight people. I have a bag that my wife lovingly refers to as Santa's sack. <laughs> um, so, um, so our, our primary cooking source is a ghillie kettle. And I, I would say that that's our unusual thing to have packed in our bag that most other people wouldn't. Um, and a ghillie kettle is a really, really incredible device. Uh, it comes from the UK originally. Um, and apparently is very common there for, for fishermen for tea time. Um, kind of thing. Uh, and what it is, is it's a double walled kettle. So kind of like a, a double walled cup or whatever, where the water is inside the walls. So when you fill it, the water's inside the wall and the whole thing is a chimney and it creates like this tornado flame in the center, right out the top. And it boils water really, really, really fast. Mm. Um, probably assuming conditions are right it's about as quick as like a jet boil or an msr uh, wind burner kind wow. of stove system and it just operates off of little twigs and stuff it's just a little twig stove basically underneath that powers the kettle um yeah that's our that's our special item that always makes it into the pack that's I'll pretty have to cool check that, out. that sounds really cool and yeah and then i'm, I'm wondering too where was i going with this Hmm. Chase, we might have to cut this part. My do, mind do, just do, went do, blank. Do, do, do. <laughs> Cue the music. I'm kind of wrapping up, or again, towards the uh, the end of uh, of my questions here, Tristan, and I'm assuming you are too. Yeah, pretty much. I I was only going to ask you about the uh, the subtitle in the book there, um, <laughs> the uh, the lightweight scrumptious recipes for outdoor enthusiasts can you define scrumptious for me, Paul? I, I don't get to use the word very often, but it, it's sure a delightful one. Scrumptious is like flavorful and satisfying at the same time. Oh, that's fun. That is yeah. fun. Yeah. And and it's your guarantee that all those meals in there are, are scrumptious to, to some right. degree. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got, I got two more things before we, we wrap things up here. Um, first off, Paul, why don't you tell everybody a where where uh, we can find your content and b where we can purchase this fantastic uh, cookbook? Sure, yeah. So I have a website, feastonadventure.com. Um, I sell the book there. I have still lots some stock at home, um, as well as there's an ebook available there. It is on vendors like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, so you can order from them as well. Um, and Friesen Press is my publisher, and it's available from their website too. I think that's FriesenPress.ca, if I remember correctly. 
Nice. And you have uh, some stuff on YouTube, I noticed, and you have an Instagram page as well that uh, people can follow along. Yep. So from my website, you can find both those, my YouTube channel and my Instagram stuff. Um, the YouTube channel has... So in, in addition to Feast on Adventure, I wrote a small little book called A Little Taste of Adventure that's available for free on my website. Hmm. And it has 10 recipes that aren't in the main book. Um, and those 10 recipes, I also do videos of how to prepare and how to rehydrate and, and all that kind of stuff, all that kind of good stuff. Um, on Instagram, you'll find some newer recipes that I had posted a while back. Um, I, I've started writing, I've, I've done the recipes for another small companion book that's going to be titled A Holiday Feast on Adventure, which is different from Feast on Adventure in that it's not about making individual meals, it's about making individual uh, dishes in order to prepare like a Thanksgiving meal. Mm. And in fact, mm -hmm. this last Thanksgiving, we went out uh, with all of those dishes and had a Thanksgiving meal in the back country just to make sure we could photograph everything and, and taste it all again. Um, and so, there's some photos of that and some recipes kind of supporting that. And you'll also see some of the fun things that I've been doing with like freeze drying um, Viva puffs or freeze drying <laughs> ice cream. Or uh, I, I did a recipe for ketchup last year. Um, so uh, ketchup powder that you can sprinkle on your freeze dried eggs, you know, after no you've prepared way. them um that that will actually get turned later on i'm going to use that same recipe hopefully to do ketchup chips a recipe for ketchup chips with oh. the ketchup powder that i made from freeze-dried tomato sugar spices that kind of thing um and i am hoping yet to figure out how to do it properly from dehydrated tomatoes to make it more more accessible oh that's wow. very cool very cool now i remember too do you have a do you dehydrate your coffee paul Oh, we're not coffee drinkers. Oh, Jesus. So we, we do not dehydrate coffee. Uh, I would freeze dry it, right? That's where, that's the, how Folgers became famous was for freeze drying coffee. Um, so yeah, if I was, if I was to be a coffee drinker, I would absolutely be freeze drying it. Okay. And th that is that, that's kind of like the instant style then where that yeah. it's been. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I'll add it to the list. Thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and my last and final question here I want to ask you, because I've been staring at those guitars the entire podcast in, in your background. Obviously a big music fan. Um, yeah. And I, I think we have quite a few music buffs that also tune into the podcast here. So, um, A, first, two, this is going to be two-parter. If you could go see one last concert, this is normally part of the five burning questions that we ask too. If you go to one last concert, anyone dead or alive, who would you go see? Okay. And then I just want to know what uh, what kind of style of music do you okay. prefer to practice? So A would be a toss-up between Pink Floyd or Dire Straits. Mm, nice. Without question. Uh, in terms of style, um, so I played in a band for a number of years, not, no one you would ever have heard of, um, and mostly pop rock, that kind of area genre. Um, I'm a rhythm guitarist primarily, uh, and a little bit of bass, as you can see back there. Mm -hmm. What you can't see back there is the ukulele. I also do some ukulele. Mm, nice. Um, if you find my personal YouTube channel, you'll find a little thing I did called songs from the dressing room. Um, where I think my, my personal, um, highlight is my ukulele cover of Amish paradise by weird Al. 
<laughs> wow so that that's a cover of a cover in some yeah. ways <laughs> yes yeah. that's great that's amazing yeah oh i love it right on well tristan any any final thoughts for uh for paul and our listeners here no just uh extremely grateful for having you on here paul and taking the time for us and it's really helped energize me to and, and give me some confidence and in, in taking a new step in my my culinary journey here and maybe enjoying some food that yeah like i said i i i'm glad you haven't seen our coolers before <laughs> so I, i'm hoping it we can maybe just avoid some of that in the near future here and i feel like you'd be a big part of that for sure absolutely yeah thanks for having me I don't, I don't think the health inspectors would be uh, giving us no. the green check work on those coolers, but uh, oh no. man. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again, Paul, for, for coming on and joining us. Um, I know that this episode was a little bit last minute here and uh, I am excited to uh, see where this, you know, the, the dehydrated and freeze dried food journey takes me here too. Cause I, I this is some pretty exciting stuff that, uh, that you have in this cookbook here and I'm, I'm i'm really excited to to kind of dive into this stuff so thanks again for coming on and, and thanks for uh developing the cookbook and, and sharing it with with everybody yeah you're welcome all right we'll catch you soon this episode of the panoramic outdoors podcast is brought to you by jiffy ice augers head over to jiffyonice.com and check out their full lineup of augers and gear there and that's a wrap for episode 125 with Paul Shipman. Thanks again to Paul for coming on and joining us. Excited about where this journey will take us. Um, Tristan, final thoughts before we uh, we head out here? It was just really great to hear Paul's not only connection to Eldora's, but his journey. He came to the to the the cookbook writing scene as a real lay person, but you could tell he had a, a passion for really understanding what what's going on behind with the food science and all that stuff too so i have a a high degree of confidence that whatever i experience by accessing his book there is going to be not only fun to eat but actually tasty and and something that works on on your camping excursion or whatever you might be on you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so practical functional and uh scrumptious scrumptious that's the one there that's the word and uh one last plug for our store before we wrap things up here if you guys are interested in getting into some summer gear we got fresh white teas goose teas everyone likes a fresh white tea on the beach or on the patio pick them up in our store panoramicoutdoors.com or if all this talk about food has got you excited we do have a couple of our locally sourced uh cutting boards available on our website from silver oak locally sourced wood locally sourced carpentry work done on them and uh pick them up today before they're all gone and we got all kinds of hats to keep that sun out of your eyes too that's a wrap episode 125 so if we don't see on the water yeah be sure to keep those those blades sharp uh maybe those lines tight and those jet boils hot there you go yeah. What was the name of that uh, that unit? The Gilly? The, gilly? the Gilly Kettle. Gilly Kettle. Keep your Gilly Kettle hot and clean. There you go. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh-huh.